0: podcast platforms be sure to give me a follow on Facebook Instagram and TikTok as well at Matt Stocks DJ that way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates my DJ performances and of course who's coming up on the show as well but without further ado let's crack on with the show shall we here we go
1: hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place
0: in the basement of the Gibson Studios. I should say at the start, thank you to them for lending me the space. So Gibson, thank you very much. Um, I'm here with Andy from Therapy. Hi, Matt. You First right? time I've seen you in, I want to say almost a year. I think the last time was we had a quick, uh, a quick, a quick cheeky mm-hmm. little drink together
2: after your set at Stone Free Festival. That's right, yeah. Which was, was that December? It was. Last year? We went to see The Darkness together. We all yes. headed off and saw those and then I, I went home. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Back to Cambridge. You still there? I'm still in Cambridge, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: In Cambridge. How's how's the family? They're all good, thanks. I've been warned. We're in the uh, basement of Gibson, and I've been well and truly warned. Not the bike. Come home with anything? Because <laughs> i spend so much money on guitars. And effects, but yeah, Which yeah. brands do you use? Do you it's have all a, Gibson? It yeah. is. Is it? I've got a well, couple. Get you talking to them. Right? Know, I've got. Well, I've got. i you been can come home with something if it's free. Or is it just more the space thing? Are you just um, slowly taking over I the just, house? I'm just slowly taking over the house. I've got a little <laughs> man share at the back. It's an L-shaped concrete bunker. Right. And it started off when we moved to Cambridge completely empty. And it's now knee deep (laughs) in all the effects, pedals, leads, four tracks.
0: Well, at least it's not in the main house.
2: No, it's not. That's that's my excuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: So what I like to do with these, Andy, is sort of, I guess, get the the overarching life story of each guest and Mm -hmm. sort of figure out their roots, where they've come from, Mm -hmm. and the things that have really shaped their personal life as much as their creative life. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, your story is very specific and centered to your upbringing in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could paint the scene and maybe tell me about that time and that place for you as a young man, what it was like growing up in that environment.
2: Well, I was born in the north of Ireland in 1965. And by the time I was going to primary school, the Troubles, as they are now known, were well and truly in full swing. So, you know, I grew up through police checkpoints everywhere, paramilitary checkpoints in certain areas, In just suburban streets, Uh, not even... uh, uh, Well, basically, originally, my parents were from Belfast. Right. They moved out to a village called Ballyclare, but we still went back to Belfast to visit my father's uh, mother on a regular basis. So things like when you were young, um, there were suburban checkpoints, paramilitary checkpoints, British Army stoppages. I mean, going to somewhere like Boots Chemists, you had to go through the same procedure you would now go through from an airport. There was, like, metal detectors. And that's just to go and do your shopping. Woolworths, stores like that had all uh, airport-type security. The city centre was ring-fenced. So around all the main shopping area, after about 9 o'clock, there was turnstiles, like the old-school turnstiles you'd see at football and rugby matches. Yeah, yeah. So you weren't allowed in or out unless you would got permission. And then in my teenage years, you know, when I started wanting to go to gigs and stuff like that, there wasn't that many gigs to go to. But there was a lot of punk gigs, because punk rockers were the bands that came over, and metal bands as well. They came over and played. So, I would I'd cut my teeth going to see anybody that would play, you know, because bands didn't want to come to Belfast in the late 70s and early 80s. So, any band that came, me and my mates went to see. Also, so, was it maybe about two years behind what was happening in the UK, in England? Very much so. I mean, the, you know, whenever it was 76, 77, you know, I was 11, 12 years of age. I was too young, really, but I remember going on holiday to Blackpool when I was 11, 12. And I was in a the pleasure beach in uh-huh. Blackpool and I heard Pretty Vi Cancer uh, and me and my brother, who was two years younger than me, started laughing and said, That sounds like old man's steptoe. <laughs> and somebody said, My my dad was gone, I think that's that band that are causing all the trouble, the Sex Pistols. So I got my mum and dad to buy me never mind the Bollocks. And they did. And they did. You know that they weren't they weren't, you know, they didn't think they just thought the title it was funny, they didn't yeah, think yeah, it was yeah. offensive. And when I got home, there was a friend of mine older than me at school that already had those records. He had the Buzzcocks, and he had the Clash and he had the Damned. So, I mean, that was, we were into that. But then, you know, we were always about two years behind what was going on in the UK because we couldn't get the records. Carline Music in Belfast was great. Was that the shop where there was a documentary recently made about it or
0: what was that That was Good Vibrations. You know,
2: this is what the point it was coming on to then later on was two years later after that. Terry Hulley, opened Good Vibrations Records on Good and Great Victoria Street. Now that's where we went every Saturday to hang out. And they we had that was what got me so into punk was that there was Ulster punk bands. There was Rudy, the Outcast, and of course the Undertones. So on Saturday you would go up and you would hang about. Now, against all this, you know, we were 14-year-old kids, me and my mates, and we had black leather jackets, little more hair jumpers, spiky hair, you know, DM boots. Um, but we were from just outside Belfast, although our parents were all from Belfast, so we would go to Belfast. But bearing in mind, our parents knew that we were getting on a bus to go into anywhere that could be bombed at any minute. And frequently it was. You know, not We were never bombed ourselves, but you know, you would hear an explosion. Now, the sad thing about all this in retrospect was that we get totally desensitized to it. So you kind of presumed, well, we've got to buy some records. Now, I've got a, a 17-year-old son now, and if, I know for a fact that if I thought that... With what's going with on With what's now, going on at the minute... But I don't. I let them go out because I knew what it was like growing up. But my parents, when I was fourteen, to allow me to get a bus to go into Belfast, that was constantly, constantly under fire and under trouble and being blown up. It was the most bombed city in the world at one point. Um, but that made us. It made all music more precious to us because for us to get a record, we had to get the bus. We had to go walk through Belfast city centre. And in those days, as well, you know, Belfast being behind the rest of the UK. Even 14, I mean, we didn't look like the punk rockers you saw on the King's Road, but having short, spiky hair and drain patch that was enough to get you a kicking in Belfast, you know. So, is that from Protestants, Catholics? No, both? no, no, that's just from uh, you call them chavs these days, we right, call them right. spides because they used to be people with spiders' webs tattooed in their neck. They was would, that the thing? Was it right? That was the thing that and that basically was just, there a reason why? No, it was just, just I think t- the, the t- first tattoo and... they got when they were 16, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the easiest one, right. And um, if you were caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, I mean, and also there's a big Teddy Boy scene. So if you were caught by Ted's or by Skinheads, stresses upon. So you know you had to get the bus up to Belfast, and you had to run the gauntlet from Belfast bus station to Great Victoria Street or to Caroline Music, one of those two record shops. Buy your records, maybe get a couple of pin badges, maybe a T-shirt. Run the gauntlet back to the bus station and come home. Now where we lived in Ballyclare, the bus station was at the bottom of the town. It was a market town. Uh, I lived at about a mile at the top of the hill so if you came back on a Saturday which you did because you went to Belfast on Saturday then you had to run the gauntlet of all the local lads that didn't like punk rockers in your village and were you but in the minority there? as a punk rocker oh there was village, there yeah? was like um I grew up on an estate and there were three punk rockers in our estate and there was one punk rocker at the bottom of the town and two at some estate in the west of town that was it So there was six or seven punk rockers so if you went to see uh you know Susie and the banshees or whatever or um you know uk subs which we did in belfast the bus would, would have all those seven people on the bus <laughs> you know we all knew each other by name we went to different schools and we were different age groups but we all knew each other right and in, in a pre-internet age
0: you're talking about music being so precious i think before the internet it was anyway because you really had to go and seek it out and find mm-hmm. it but then when you add on top of that all of this kind of
2: turmoil that's going on all around you. Was it like an escape? Oh completely. And it was um we were surrounded by the troubles and most people of my generation whether Protestant or Catholic, you know, music was their way out because gigs was a, a gig to be honest, most gigs were a sacred place because both sides of the community could mingle. Is that the only place where they wouldn't fight then? Oh uh, well, it, it was it's weird to describe, it. you know, it wasn't as black and white, you know, during a Saturday afternoon, both sides would mingle in the city center. Um but, you know, there were definite marketed areas where you couldn't go. But, you know, with the likes of record shops, gigs, you could go. Pubs were uh, a bunch, you know, because pubs were territorial. They belonged to certain areas. Apart from the ones near the gigs, and they were mixed again. You know, there was Lavery's Bar and places like that. But that's, you know, where we went. And uh, it was it was the one place where no one talked about troubles. Because you, know, you, you think of it, it was on re- television the whole time. Yeah. Uh, the newspaper headlines, wherever we were, we're also you know there was sectarianism i grew up in a mainly protestant area and i had to listen to an awful lot of bigotry that i knew it from an early age was wrong but i had to listen to it and i had catholic friends that grew grew up the same way in their areas too but when you went to see a band all that was forgotten so all you would talk about if you heard the dead kennedy's album what do you think of the new buzzcocks album the stranglers are coming to town next week do you like the jesus and mary chain you know, all this kind of stuff that's what you talked about and that and football you know what i mean so that was the two things that kind of saved us
0: what age were you when you went to your first show? And was, were you allowed or did you I, have to I I was allowed
2: it was I was 13 and I went to see Susie and the Banshees at the Ulster Hall in Belfast which is an incredible venue. Not a bad start and, for gigging um, experience. Say. Well it was I remember being you know you're always embarrassed at that age and my mum and dad said okay well it's a punk gig because they I mean they, they let me buy Nevermind the bollocks but they thought punk rock was people biting each other's ears off and all this kind of stuff so they were on the sure so they said we're going to run you to the gig it was a, a friend of mine that lived in the estate in the house across the road so we're going to drop you and John off. Is that your brother? Uh, no, it was uh, the guy across the road, John House. So right. we're going to drop you off and you're going to go to the gig and then we'll pick you up at exactly half 10 where we drop you off and you have to be there because obviously we had no mobile phones in those days. Yeah, yeah. So they did that thing. If they pulled right up in front of the queue. <laughs> so it was all mortifying these, for a team. Yeah, there's drugs, all yeah. these really cool looking punk rockers with pink Mohicans and tartan bondage trousers. And my mom and dad sort of pulled up, you know, their <laughs> Austin Maxius whatever. And me and this mate and man, we kind of got out and had to walk the walk of shame down yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. front of the queue to the back with everyone looking at us. Going, Woo. Yeah. But then when we went in, it was like, they started off with a song called The Lord's Prayer, which uh-huh. is about 10 minutes long. And me, you know, I went straight to the front because I didn't know what else to do. It was quite terrifying. There was skinheads, there was punks, you know. And some of the punks in those days looked truly scary. You know, whatever amount of glue they'd snort us um, inhaled before they went there. But then, you know, two or three songs in, it was amazing. It was those days as well where there was there was also a sense of danger at gigs. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Which you would imagine maybe grime gigs or something like that, or like now where there was that sense of at any moment this could kick off. There's unpredictability. Uh, yeah, the that was it. There was a bit of menace and danger in there. But at the same time, when you're 13 years old, full of hormones and adrenaline, it was amazing. You were fearless, aren't you, at that age? You are- Oh, you're completely fearless. And yeah, we went straight down the front, watched every single moment, stayed there and came out. Of course, we were 15 minutes late, you know, because the, the gig ran late. And we get into the car. But then that was it. Any gig that came on in the Ulster Hall or the Queen's University or the Art College in Belfast, we would go to. So your parents were always supportive of it? They were always supportive yeah. of it, yeah. I mean I think Was the that way... unique? No. Or do you think because n- there was no. so
0: much shit going on, a lot of parents just wanted to give their kids some sort of escape and joy? A
2: bit like that. I think what it was, was they knew that me and my friends were in music. And we grew up in a loyalist estate where there was members of UVF and UDA. Now, I think they would rather get in the car and drop us uh, a Stranglers gig than have us drinking in the sectarian loyalist pub down the road because we're more likely to get approached about joining said organisation yeah, and getting involved in the activities that come with that so I think they'd rather at least they knew if they dropped us at Queen's University or you know the, the, the Ulster Hall or something like that they knew where we were they knew where we were in a relatively safe environment and then they would pick <laughs> us up coming home yeah
0: um, you mentioned sniffing glue yeah. a moment ago. Obviously, back in the day, I guess, the drug of choice was mm-hmm. speed and, and glue, as you say. Yeah. At what age did you start
2: drinking and trying to dabble with stuff like that? Did that come later on? That came later on. I, I mean, to be honest, on, I mean, unlike a lot of my friends, I never really drank. I never drank, actually. I met a friend of mine, um, one of my best friends at school, Chris. and I, He's been in touch on and off over the years. He now lives in Scotland. But he met my wife for the first time last year, my son. And he reminded me that I didn't drink until I was about 18. Right, right. Because I was so obsessed with music. That's all you needed. If I went to watch a band, why would I spend £4 or £5 on a pint when I could buy a t-shirt with that? Or I could go into the record shop the next Monday. But the, the big thing was the paramilitaries didn't allow drugs in. Well, allegedly. So it was a lot more difficult in Belfast to get speed. So a lot of people turned to stuff like magic mushrooms and glue. And I certainly remember growing up, the first drug I ever took. Was magic mushrooms? Was it really that yeah, was your that baptism was the, very, the, of fire. the very first? I didn't smoke any high school, And the first time I took anything other than alcohol was magic mushrooms. Wow! And it was how was, was that? How it old? was it was great because it was with a, a guy that was a bit older than me and his yeah, mate that so had taken, could sort of guide you through. They'd taken it before and they sort of told me, you know, a good piece of advice. Actually, they said it's hallucinogenic. It'll last twelve hours. If you feel funny, just tell yourself this will wear off. I'm not going to be like this forever, and that yeah. really helped. If he hadn't have been there, God knows what would have happened. But um, that was, that was the first time, but it didn't, you know, that was it. Then it was a long, long time after that, before I did anything else. And as I say, that, you made you, it for lost time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I made it for lost time a lot later on, but you know, then, and that was it. It was all, uh, mostly about music and what I would yeah, save yeah. all the money for music. Yeah. So when did you start playing or writing or singing? What, what came first for you? Um, writing came pretty much straight away because what happened was at the ages of 13 and 14, I loved the stranglers. And I love Joy Division. And because of that, I love the bass guitar. And mm-hmm. the first thing I got was I, I got a, a small Jetson three-quarter length bass guitar. My dad bumped for me one day secondhand. It was a tiny little mustard yellow thing and a Selmer 5-watt amp. And I played that at home. And then when I was 16, I got a Westone Thunder one and a Carlsberg Cobra bass. And I was really going through a Stranglers phase. Then I would learn everything that John Jack Burnell from the Stranglers played, everything that Peter Hook played. And then I started writing songs on the bass guitar. So we had a couple of little bands, one called Omex at school, which was like a little organ, me on bass, a guy called Paul Clyde on guitars, a guy called Andrew Henry shouting. We went on to uh, another band at school called The Liquidators, which I played bass in, and it was more like a sort of post-punk magazine wire kind of band. That was We rehearsed in a place called Car Money and a guy called Davy Anderson's Garage and davy anderson was a singer and at time and he now runs it well he did run a dance label called harry bear later on i have good friends with david holmes the dj uh and then really after that i had several bands one called every mother's son with that aforementioned man chris from school and the drummer from that band was gordy walker who's now the drummer in a punk band called protex he was a drummer and then we ended up with therapy then a, a few years later um but, that, but then I'd switched to guitar. And the reason I switched to guitar and therapy was I was going to be the bass player in this band when I formed it with Fife Ewing, the first the original founding therapy drummer. And the idea was I'd written some songs on a guitar that a neighbor gave me. A neighbor, her brother had died, and she came up to the house and said, you're a musician, i went, not really I play punk bass. And she went, well, there's a Schechter semi-acoustic guitar it used to be in a covers band. I was going to throw it out or sell it, would you like it? So I was given a six-string guitar. So, I taught myself a few Buzzcocks and Ramones songs, you know, all bar chords, pretty easy to play, and a few little lead lines, Chuck Berry lead lines. So, when it came to therapy beginning, we were waiting for a guitar player and one didn't turn up. So, on the very first demo we ever made in 1989, I played the guitar parts and bass. And bass. Yeah, yeah. And then, when it, uh, at the time, we wanted a guitar player that was into the same kind of music as me and Fife. And Fife was still at school at the time. Fife said, uh, he was an upper sixth. He went, I don't know any guitarist, but I know a really good bassist. He's in a band called Evil Priest. He's called Michael McKeegan. Why don't we get him to play bass and you play the guitar? And I said, okay, well, and that was it. So then I started playing really guitar seriously. He had always been so that nickname's always been there for him because that yeah. was the name of well, his original was a, band. He was, a, he was in a band since he was 15 called Evil Priest. Right, yeah. so it's just stuck. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, <laughs> I this it. is going slightly off topic, but one of the great things about Michael McKeegan is uh, he was part of that whole thrash metal, death metal tra- tape trading scene yeah. when he was 15, 16. And, you know, even to whenever we would go and tour the world and we would bump into members of bands like Nicky Anderson from the Helicopters that would go, hey, man, the evil priest, I have your demo, you know, from years ago because he'd be sending, when Nicky was an Entombed, he'd be swapping tapes with Nicky and Nicky was only, what, 16 or 17 at the time too. Wow. And then he meets other people, you know, from bands whose names I can't even pronounce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or read when and, you see yeah, the logo, and, yeah. And from all over the years, Michael's had some kind of contact with him. That's amazing. What
0: a great time for music. I think not just in terms of what was being made, but the way it was being shared with fanzines with flyering. I mean, I don't know whether maybe you just romanticize it through the tinted lens of nostalgia. But I mean, what was it like for you as someone who's come through the digital age and is obviously still very active now? Was there a magic to that time that did make it a bit special?
2: Uh, without being too nostalgic but I think I enjoyed it personally simply for the fact that I, don't, I couldn't go back now because I love the digital age I love having everything there so yes I can turn around and say it was amazing but if you said to me tomorrow would you like to go back I'd say absolutely not right. I like the fact that if you recommend to me a band you can just I can get my instantly. phone up and hear them yeah. you know whereas before well, I mean, there was a certain amount of I think what it did do is it made us appreciate music more so you know it was all handwritten mail as well so I would write to say a punker that I'd met at a, I don't know, uh, snuff gig at the art college in Belfast, who would live in the other side of the country, and he'd say, "Have you heard Agent Orange?" And I said, "No, I haven't heard them yet." Have because John Peel was my listening post, maximum rock and roll zine, local scenes So I would send him a letter with maybe the first Lemonheads album in a cassette, and then he would send me back the Agent Orange seven inches on a cassette, and that was how we got. But it would take you know two weeks by the time yeah. the transaction was there. But that that's was cool, that was quite good. I mean I was tidying up the garage I was mentioning earlier, the L shaped bunker. I went through a box from when I was nineteen twenty the other day and that's just full of tons of cassettes with like uh, all these old like punk bands on it, negative approach, uh you know, bands like that, sort of um the dicks, all this kind of stuff, you know, just people from all over the country and sometimes people in the in the rest of Britain or Ireland had sent me. Are you friends with Henry Rollins at all? Not friends with him, but, you know, if if we see him at a festival, stop and have a chat, and I, I know him well enough that, you know, we can stop and have a yarn. yeah nice. uh, because he's got one of those famously
0: massive tape collections, hasn't he? I've like, seen pictures of it, yeah.
2: Someone sent here. me a book on uh, on collectors, and there's a whole two pages on Rollins. Right. We did a tour with Rollins in 94 for nearly two months, supporting the Rollins band with therapy, and that was at his request because he had heard the song Nowhere, and he'd really liked it. And he's really like the first album, Baby Teeth, that was on uh, Touch and Go in America. So we went to tour with them and re- went out with him a few nights. Had really, you know, it's, he went out with us one night when we, we said we were going to get drunk, and he said, "Well, as you know, I don't drink." But has he always been straight edge? No, 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 I don't no. think so. I think in the early back flag days, he drank and stuff right, like that. Right. But you know, I think at some point he just completely went straight edge. But when he was in tour with us, the rest of the band, you know, they all had a few drinks. But I remember going out with him one night in New York, and he said, Right. And that's right. We played with Helmet a few months before. So Helmet had turned up, and we said, It's going to be us, Helmet. We're going to go to this bar in, uh, in Brooklyn somewhere. And he said, Okay, I'll come along for a while, but I'm not drinking. And I think within about an hour, somebody had been sick in the corner. <laughs> He couldn't make out what someone was saying. He said, right, yeah, thanks, but I'm off, you know. <laughs> Love it. You know, What it were like, Helmet like back then? Of they're, course, reckon we've They were amazing. Like, yeah. You know, we, we got to know, Paige played on one of our albums. He played on Trouble Gummy, He played a guitar solo on the track called Unbeliever. And we toured the lineup in America was uh, us on first, Jesus Lizard, and then Helmet headlining. And in some in places a. we'd swap with Jesus Lizard. We'd go on in the middle. I you knew at this point in time we had every single record by Jesus Lizard and Helmet, so it was a complete fanboy tour for all three members of Therapy. It was like, oh my god! And the fact that they were so cool. So on days off, all the bands would hang out together, which is really really unusual. But you know, we'd have a day off, we'd all stay in the same hotel area, and then we'd all meet up and have. It was the first time I ever had sushi. It's usually how green I am, being from uh, being from uh, Ireland, and I'd never had sushi in my life. We went on tour with Helmet, and Paige said, "Let's go and have sushi." And I went, "Is that Japanese raw fish?" And he went, yeah. And I remember. The it, thought of it is disgusting if you've never had it, isn't it? it well, I, I was just curious, but I remember sitting opposite him and he, bless him, he was, like, he was telling me how to hold the chopsticks and where to put the wasabi and everything. So I was taught how to eat, you know, by, uh, page. So she, by page. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but really, really, really nice guys. And you mentioned John Peel a moment ago. Was he one of the first champions of therapy?
2: Well, the reason we've got our very first radio play because uh the, the very first radio play we got it's it's either a toss-up between john or bbc northern ireland they were both in the same week and i'm not really sure what the dates are but we were on we had sent i made a couple of demo tapes and we sent one uh to a, a guy who got us in touch with a band called the beyond and the beyond had heard the tape now the beyond had a certain neil cooper on drums that is our current drummer yeah yeah so Neil was 17. At the time, the rest of the band were all in their 20s. Avant-garde metal, brilliant, brilliant band, beyond. And they said, well, we'll take you on tour in the UK. So uh, they took us on tour in the UK. And the day before our London show, which was New Cross Venue, we had a copy of our seven-inch single. And I was driving the van at the time. And I drove it up to BBC, double parked, ran into reception and went, can I leave this for John Peel? And the receptionist looked at me and said... <laughs> that's kind of not the way it works. <laughs> can, can you not get a PR guy to send it in? And I went, I actually said, I've driven from Northern Ireland. And he went, okay, right. We'll see what we can do. So I wrote a handwritten note. Dear Mr. Peel, we are therapy from Northern Ireland. My name is Andy, I'm the guitarist. Here's the address on the back of the single. And that was on a Thursday, I think. And then we got home and we were in Michael's. Michael a flat with his brother in Belfast and we were in the living room one night and he came, his brother Charlie came bombing in from the kitchen. I went, User are getting played on John Peel. And John Peel was playing our seven-inch single at the end of it. He said that was therapy. They come from uh, Ballycastle, in County Antrim, and you can contact them on this address. And he read out the address. Wow! And it was like unbelievable. That was literally what happened. I double parked the van, left a copy of a seven-inch with a receptionist at BBC, and somehow it got to him. And then the next week he played it. And then after that, you know, we get picked up by a record label, and we did a couple of Peel sessions after that. And we met him. A, we met him once um, at a festival, the Phoenix Festival. I think it was stratford upon Even it was. And we sent him like a football jersey once to thank him. So it was great. He was very, very instrumental in the early days of therapy.
0: I mean, he broke so many bands from the punk scene right up until just before he died, didn't yeah. he? He was just always the first on whatever seemed to be going on, no matter what the, the style. He's such a champion, such an yeah. important figure.
2: He played all the Northern Irish bands. punk bands. All the Northern Irish punk bands that were in that movie, if you've seen that movie, Good Vibrations. Yeah, yeah. And it is well worth seeing. The bands in that that aren't the undertones like Rudy, The Outcast, and Shock Treatment. You know, John Peel played those bands on his show. Local radio at the time wouldn't play them, you know, even though there were local bands. So, you know, um, it was only later on people began to pick up on them, you know, downtown radio and people like that. But you know, John Peel played all that and they did a gig at the Ulster Hall, two thousand capacity, a good vibrations gig that's featured in the movie. And John Peel had agreed to compare it and that really helped the profile because all of a sudden it went from so many ticket sales to like a full house. And
0: he Terry Hooley was—is um, he still around? Is he still alive?
2: Oh yes, he is. Yeah, you always see Terry. We
0: were—he's a bit of a hellraiser, right? <laughs> he <Or is>. was. <laughs> I interviewed him a few years back. I think oh, it yeah. was actually around the premiere of that documentary. Oh, yeah. It was wow. over the phone. Yeah. I think he was literally at the premiere, mm-hmm. and he was definitely like a few pints in, and he was—he's always a few pints in. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's
2: lovely, Terry. I mean, the last time I saw him actually, uh, <clears throat> and, I, and we all had a drink with him. It was um, at the Ulster Hall. They were doing like a celebration of of Northern Irish music, and Terry was there, of course. <laughs> but he's, he's always, you know, he's, he's always good time to speak to everyone. Mm. And he's brilliant, and you know, everyone knows me, I and mean, he is always at every gig. You know, if you go and see anybody, whether it's, I don't know, Napalm Death or Little Peep or whoever, Terry, you can guarantee Terry will be there at the back of the hall
0: somewhere. Love it. Yeah. Who were your peers when you were coming up? Who did you feel like was part of the same movement? Because it seemed to be quite specific. Do you know what I mean? Mm alternative rock if you want to yeah. call it that and um, obviously Britpop was so big in the UK at that yeah. time what you guys were doing was very different who would you say because I know a lot of your inspiration was obviously the new wave and original first wave of punk yeah. but then a lot of american bands as well who yeah. would you say in the uk was maybe like on par with therapy as perhaps akin to what mm. you were doing if there was indeed any oh no
2: there was i mean i was four and a half years five years older than fife and mike on the band and they were into I, as I was into the first wave of punk, I was also into stuff like Husker du, mm-hmm. but they were into later stuff, you know, um, Minor Threat, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that, then we were all into together, so early techno, the early squads you take, and early, you know, really uh, thrash metal we were into as well. And stuff like Can and Noy, you know, uh, Krautrock. But for us, the bands... A wide are, pool of influences. Yeah, but that was just, we listened to absolutely everything. But what are, I suppose our main influences at the time, and, me and our buddies would have been Babes in Toyland, because, you know, we... Um, did a couple of tours with them. We once shared a house with them when we were recording because they were part of Southern Recordings in uh St John's Wood and Wood Green, no St John's Wood in London. Uh Silverfish, who were on the same record label as us who helped get us signed to uh Ouija Records. They were good friends. Um Fudge Tunnel. Right, yeah. Yeah, they were uh God early Godflesh. Um and then bands like Snuff that's in the UK and then American bands you know, we played a lot with bands like uh, Mud Honey at the time we played we played loads of gigs with Tad yeah of course as well yeah, 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 yeah. Helmet so I suppose really uh, the bands that we had a lot in common with from about 91 to 92 were kind of American noise and American hardcore bands and UK kind of calmed and crusty lurchy punk bands as well yeah. Terminal Cheesecake that was another band as well so they were kind of ones that we would see you know every time because a record label was based in talbot road and Sh- uh, just off notting hill so every time we were over there we would always go and see gigs with gary walker who's not domino records but at the time was at ouija and that's the kind of bands we'd go and see and we'd always end up in a pub with members of the bands afterwards somewhere so what about mud honey at that time as a live act mud honey were amazing we'd, yeah. you know we'd seen mud honey and i thought i've forgotten one band for as well Fugazi were probably the primo influence actually. And you told you I, them as well, right? We did a couple of shows with them, but we would go and see them quite often as well. But I think it was their open-mindedness that appealed to us. Yeah, you know, they were—they would listen to everything from like Tony Allen's African drumming to James Brown funk to um, uh, Washington go-go black music, you know, stuff like that. And then also bands like you know, uh, the, the Misfits and Black Flag. But them and Mudhoney, going back to Mudhoney as well. The first few times we saw them were incredible. The first album, really Superfuzz Big Muff, that was a real big album. I mean, there's a lot of albums that I don't feel like that gets the
0: credit it deserves in terms of the whole grunge movement. I feel no, like it they often get overlooked. No. Obviously,
2: if you're into that scene, you you're aware of them. Yeah, but- I think they were they were probably for us before because to me grunge had two things. Grunge to us initially meant. Kids that grew up in Seattle, which you know we've been in Seattle, we've played gigs there, we've recorded for two months in Seattle with Jack and Dino, and we find a lot of parallels with the North of Ireland and Seattle. It's rainy. Kids are into everything because you know it's it's quite isolated from the rest of the country in places. Uh, people smoke a lot of dope. You know, there's not a big class A scene there. There wasn't. When we were there. People like downers. People wear army jackets and listen to they listen to Black Sabbath and Black Flag and the Subhumans all in the same listening session. And I think a lot of that, and when we heard mud honey, we think these guys like the same bands as we do, but then whenever grunge got into the hands of metal bands that just didn't wash the hair, then it slightly changed for us because it became a bit more uh it wasn't really grunge anymore in the true sense it was more it was it was hard rock really yeah, you yeah. know with with check shirts. Um, Did you spend some it, time
0: with any of those? I, I know you just said then you recorded in Seattle for a mm, couple of months. That was yeah. later, right? That was later. Yeah. Did you hang out with any of those sort of Seattle bands? Yeah, get I mean, to see w- the city through their eyes. Completely. I mean, well, yeah.
2: every time we went to Seattle, I mean, we knew bands like um, you know Hammerbox and stuff like that. You know, we pe- babies in toyland had moved to Seattle for a while. We'd bump into them. You know, whenever we were in um, doing the Shameless album, two thousand and one. With Jack and Dino, we had uh, we needed some gear because we brought some of our equipment, and Jack and Dino got in touch with uh, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam shared a a place down by the harbor, a rehearsal spot, and the first day he drove us down there in his truck, and some members of Soundgarden were there, some members of Ben Shepherd was there, Matt Cameron, and they had a big massive rehearsal room, and they said take what you want. Wow, even in um, 2001, they were still sharing they, a space. They, yeah, or, they said, no, they said that. I mean, about, I mean, it's some space, like, you know, it's enormous, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, amazing, yeah. beautiful. And they said, take what you want. And then, you know, we'd go to a drink in a place called Hattie's Heart and Ben Shepard would come and hang out. And he brought um, Boba Dupre from Void one night. And, you know, I was like, oh my God, I was so starstruck because, you know, they used to be in Void, who I loved and they were just really nice guys and whenever we finished the album ben shepherd turned up out of the blue at the studio with a big bottle of jack daniels for us as a congratulations for finishing the record nice but like they lent us all the gear i mean they didn't know us i think we'd met some of the lads from pearl jam once at a festival in the 90s but that was it but jack said no the guys are all really cool you know they'll lend you what you want and they let us take bass amps guitar amps some leads you know it's great
0: you were obviously thrown into the fame hurricane right because when therapy blew up you blew up big yeah what was that like for you as a kid from Northern Ireland to kind of go into this? I mean, did you get exposed to sort of like the Hollywood side, that kind of uh, yeah, yeah no, we big did. music industry mogul?
2: We, we, well, we got, I mean, at the time of Trouble Gum, the record had sold. I mean, we've gone from selling 2,000 copies of an indi- two independent albums that went to number one in the indie charts. And our first album had done like 100,000 copies. But then Trouble Gum all of a sudden comes out in the first month, it's done 650,000 copies, which completely took us by surprise none of you saw that coming the record company were quite surprised as well they they thought well it did a lot better than they thought i mean they did put a lot of money into it but um it also got to the point you know we um i remember when goodwill hunting came out we were a special guest of gus van zant of screening in amsterdam and he thanked the band and waved at us from stage and all this kind of stuff but i think the thing what was the link there did he just like you he just liked us invited he knew we were in town he invited us to the screening. and I suppose things, it was all little, I mean, way, way too much now to even remember. But I think <laughs> we did a song with Ozzy, you know, on a tribute album. We yeah, record, yeah. Which one did you do? We did um, Iron Man yeah, and we yeah. recorded it in LA with Terry D and Ozzy. So we went over to LA. <laughs> we recorded the guitar, bass and drums with uh, Chris Tangerides in London. And then we flew over and did the track with Ozzy. And we, I did my vocals and Ozzy did his. Together in the uh, studio, not to in the studio. No? You know, he did his, and then I went and did mine. Did you hang out and spend time with him? Well, he was trying at the time to kind of stay on the straight and narrow, right? And uh, he had a guy with him called Steve, who was a Scottish assistant, who's lovely, he, his minder, yeah. essentially. So, yeah, and he, he basically just said, you know. Don't take offence, but, you know, if, because of you boys, you know, you'll, not, you'll not come back in a good way. So we're we'll just getting back now, yeah, if you yeah, do yeah. But, um, no, that was great. But I think the thing about us was because we were we were very, very naive. We weren't naive about how the band should be run. We weren't naive about financial matters, you know, and, and how to keep the band afloat. But I think we weren't, I suppose, how can I put this? We weren't cool people in that, you know, a lot of people when they get to that level of fame, they begin to act like they should do at that level of fame. They they, they develop a certain aloofness and a certain, um, they pick and choose wisely about who they talk to and who they're seen with and all this. And we didn't have those kind of filters because we grew up in, in Northern Ireland and we went to see all the bands we liked. We had different tastes in music. We were friendly to everyone. You know, we helped each other up through the industry. So we didn't really realize that when you get to a certain level, all these politics come into play. And I think that way it, it didn't really sit well with us in the end because I think we didn't want to put up with a lot of the nonsense that had to come with it. You know, we Play the game. Play the game and, you know, be a certain way and tell people certain things. I mean, you know, I think when there's a... Um, there's a comp- you, know, you get into some conversations with people in the music business when they're saying, I'm hearing this album in, in reds and um, <laughs> you just know the guy doesn't really know what he's talking about. Yeah. And whenever it gets to that point, I think we would always switch off.
0: So um, a lot of... Uh, Characters from both sides of the fence, both the kind of artistic side and the business.
2: Yeah, well... And that's
0: kind of the corruption of the art, I think, isn't it?
2: Well, I think, to be honest, people always portray... It's easy to portray it in Robin Hood terms, that, you know, the music business, the people... You know, if you've read Kill Your Friends, which is an amazing book, you know. Do you like that book? I like the book. I don't like the film. I I find the book so stomach-churningly
0: offensive in the (laughs) way that it describes and treats women but just people as well but that's, and i know that was so the reality true. of it that and was the truth i just
2: i had to stop reading it about halfway through because it made me feel sick it made oh, me like. feel sick psychosomatically because i've been in the situation so many times when it's a flat somewhere in kensington of an R guy there's lines of cocoa on the table a bottle of whiskey and ice bottles of beer it's daylight outside and someone is talking for the last two hours about what producer they're going to get into an album and it, it, that made me feel stomach churningly bad because I've been in those situations Flashback. and it's like yeah <laughs> but you know I think also like a lot of artists artists don't do themselves any favours either you know people always think as they went went back you know there's this situation where the bands are always really badly and that does go on but you know when you sign to a major record label unless you're absolutely daft you know for a fact you've signed to them they see you as something that will shift some units and make some money you're a commodity and, and your idea eyes, yeah. is to try and make the most of it spread your word out, again, out in the world But there are also people in bands who do themselves no favors. You know, some people completely change. We have seen people in the business go from being all right to being the nastiest piece of work you can imagine in a couple of months if they have a little bit of success. And it's also to this day there are still bands that. um, One thing that therapy's lost, you know, we've never lost, and we've been around for so long is we're quite sensible with money. And I think it's because we never had any when we grew up. <laughs> yeah. And it's we see so many bands out there now that aren't big anymore, but they still want to live the lifestyle they had when they were. So it'll be tour buses and top hotels. And you're thinking, right, you're getting paid 700 quid a gig and you're spending two grand to put this gig on.
0: Just hemorrhaging money. Yeah. And
2: all you're doing is you're going on tour so you can live like a rock star for two months and then you're going to go back and you'll have no money to show for it. Yeah. And to, to therapy, that's always been pretty daft.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
2: Talk to me about making nurse at that point in time, what was going on. So we get signed to ANM, and and we had been given three weeks in a place in Carlow in the south of Ireland to rehearse and write. And what had happened at this point in time, people were beginning to call therapy a grunge band. I used to have really long hair and you knew the nose ring and everything. People were actually bracketing this in my grunge. And we, we sort of sat and had a band meeting and said, right, okay, well, maybe this time around we should up some of the more dance influences. You know, we've we've had that on songs before like Innocent X on the first album. So we had songs like Teeth Grinder. And we had songs like um Is that still in the set every night? That's still in the set, yeah, every Love night. It. And we we put some of that in. And we decided to make it, you know, so the sound of it wasn't just uh, a gnarly record. That it would be more like a kind of better recorded version of what we'd already been doing. Um, on reflection, I like the songs. I think the sound was a bit too clean. Because I think we were so self-conscious about being roped in with a grunge back. You know, I cut all my hair off and off the promo pictures. And we we went too far the other way. But uh, it, was a, it was a good stepping stone to the Trouble Gun record. But at that time, we did it in local studios in Wales. We recorded it with a sound engineer, Harvey Burrell, who's great. He's done loads of really good bands. He's done uh, everyone from the Census Things to Alien Sex Fiend. He's done some Big Black and Fugazi recordings as well. Terminal Cheesecake, but um, we did it with him, and we did it in Wales. And that was uh, it. Was just uh, I don't know if you've ever been to local studios. I don't even think it's there anymore. It's in the middle of nowhere, and it's residential, but there are enough bedrooms for say two or three people, but then they have a caravan out the back as well where you stay. Mm-hmm. And we had some friends of ours too. up, So, I mean, it was a party every night. Was it? And, and uh, because, you know, if someone wanted to sleep, then the idea was leave the studio complex and go to the caravan. So there was this little caravan at the bottom of the garden.
0: So that was where the sleeping went on?
2: <laughs> no, the, the sleeping went on in the studio oh, complex. Right, right, right. right this right. little tiny caravan it was well, well. We got a sound system <laughs> every night, yeah. <laughs> Is that when the drugs come in? Or, that was that, what, or was what, that trouble gum? No, no, no. There was there was psychedelics involved during the making of Nurse. If you listen to some of the production, I mean. Right, right. There was what are lo- we talking there was, mushrooms or acid? We're, talking, we're talking mushrooms and we're talking uh, marijuana. If you listen right. to the production on Nurse, put headphones on and listen to the production nurse and listen to how much flange and hi hat. Flange and, and a phaser on the hi hats yeah. and the drums. And uh, the bass line's got quite a bit of flange and chorus on it and all. And that was during the production stage because we we were sensible enough. We recorded the whole thing sober. But then, when it came to the sort of mixing stage like that, we were all just sitting around the mixing desk in various states of mind, going, put a bit of flange on that. And it's, uh, while it's not a truly psychedelic album, if you listen to it in headphones, I don't think there's ever been as much special effects on any drum kit in the history of rock.
0: <laughs> I love it. And then Trouble Gun, let's get into the heart and the beast of making that. That's obviously the mm. one, probably why you're still here today, mm. right? I yeah, think yeah, that completely. was the album that allowed you to become known all over the world and, yeah. you know, expand and develop on what's, always going to be i think the definitive therapy statement right
2: Mm -hmm. yeah that's true you know it's very much true and i think that was we got to that in a certain point that's when we we felt comfortable we found a sound that was our own and i think that was through i'd written a song that became that became known as scream major and i thought it was too poppy and i played it to the guys and fife the drummer initial thought it's way too poppy michael quite liked the riff but he wasn't sure. So we put it on the back burner. And when we were going to do Trouble Gun, we got Chris Sheldon, the producer, in. So he came down to listen to some songs. And we played him some songs he had in a studio in Putney. And then we played him. We said, well, we have this one. We played him Screamage. And he went, that's amazing. Why didn't you play me that earlier? And we said, well, we think it's too poppy. And he went, well, you're from Northern Ireland. You know, the undertones are from Northern Ireland. He said, it's like Metallica meets the undertones. <clears throat> and I said, have you any more like that, Andy? And I sort of, well, got a song called Nowhere. I think it sounds like Another Girl, Another Planet but the only one so we played him nowhere and he went that's great anything else and we said well we've one called Die Laughing, which is a wee bit Fugazi but it's got a big poppy chorus we played that and he said okay right well we've got the direction we want to go in
0: you, so those it? three became the bare bones the, the, well those album, three became
2: the direction we wanted it was yeah. like that Undertones meet Metallica Basically, yeah, yeah. that was a sales pitch and we said okay so let's go in this direction so any songs that didn't fit into that template really or didn't or wandered off weren't really included so the thing about Trouble Gun was we, um, at the time, Fife was about to move house to Brighton from Northern Ireland and Michael wanted to go on a holiday. So we'd rehearsed all the songs. All the bass and drums of that album were recorded in two days. Two days? Two days. Because both wanted, they both needed to get off. <laughs> you know, Michael came back later on and hung about and did bits and places. but it was like kind of, oh, the songs are rehearsed. We know them all. They're all arranged. The producer likes the arrangement. We're really happy with the arrangements. There's not really any, any reason to take any longer. So it was like bish, bash, bosh. That was it. And then we took everything to Rack Studios in London where I did the guitar and focus with Chris.
0: Just on your own with him, one-on-one? Just
2: on one with him. And we sent some stuff over to... We sent... In the middle of doing this, we sent a track called Unbeliever to Paige Hamilton who had phoned up and asked him to play a solo. He had agreed... We had asked uh, Leslie Rankin from Silverfish to sing in a track, so we sent her the bare bones of it so that she could rehearse it, and she agreed. Eileen Rose sang on a track called Femtex. So all that was um, on in the background, and really all I did then was in about two weeks, I just worked 24-7, You know, got very little sleep, and went in and just did take-after-take of vocals and played loads of guitars. Do you enjoy singing in the studio? Do you take to that discipline um, well? I did with that album because Chris Sheldon the producer is brilliant with vocalists because up until that point if you listen to all the therapy records to that point we're very much from the Fugazi Husker Du school of thought where there is melody there but it's self-consciously yelled out after two bottles of wine Yeah, it's very much almost like an afterthought and Chris Sheldon is very much no 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 do it again and I would be very much you know going nowhere and he'd go no, yeah. no 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 sing it and he would go sing it sing every note in it and he would get a piano and go da, 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 da. sing those notes don't just sing an approximation of those notes. And I think that's what made us such a successful album because he gave a clarity to the delivery, which, you know, the average rock fan would go, this is great, I always thought they were a noisy indie band. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what happened. And he took songs like Trigger Inside and, and "Unbeliever" and all, and he, he gave them a clarity which we would have rushed. And we're eternally great to, grateful for him to this, to this day because he helped with that. So what
0: happens when the album comes out? Top of the pops, magazine covers.
2: Well, before the album came out, we'd been on top of the pops with a song called Scream Major, and we were on top of the pops with its follow up, Opal Mantra, which got to number 13. And then they released Nowhere as a single before the album, so we were on top of the pops doing Nowhere. So before the album came out, we'd been on top of the pops three times. Wow. And I was like, it was, I mean, it was, it's very uncool with some people to do top of the pops because the Clash always refused to do it. They are one of the few. Ever they were one of the few. But for one us growing up, ever. I mean, I saw the Buzzcocks on Top of the Pops, I saw Motorhead on Top of the Pops, I saw the Ruts, the members on Top of the Pops, Nirvana, Nirvana, the it, Ramones yeah. on Top of the Pops. So to be asked to be on Top of the Pops, it was a no-brainer for us. Yeah, and it, um, that was the one. Who thing... Who was
0: on the times you were on? Did you meet any interesting characters? Well, ironically, filming? the
2: very first time we were on, we um, we were on. Uh, Big Country were on who I really like because the Skids were one of my favourite punk bands and Stuart Adamson God bless him was the lead guitarist in Big Country and one of my favourite bands from the 80s the Sisters of Mercy were on and I and didn't my, you just play with them we just played with them yeah, yeah, yeah which yeah. I reminded Andrew Eldridge whenever I met him again and, but the thing was I was What's really he nervous. like he's a bit he's lovely is he he's absolutely is He just different. got
0: the kind of defence wall up He's he's quite shy,
2: I think. Shy, yeah. I think he's quite shy. And he's obviously forget with someone like Andrew because he's so revered by very, very intense types. Yeah. He has to pick and choose who he meets because it's not like, you know, a member of therapy could walk into a rock club, someone might know who we are and they come up and want to either give you get an autograph, get a selfie or buy you a beer. But someone. But they're not going to follow you home. But they're not going to follow you home. Andrew yeah. gets really intense fans, and I think he's very guarded. But so I had this in mind whenever we did Top of the Pops and in 1993. Mariah Carey was also on the show, and I remember sitting in the dressing room, and Andrew Eldritch walked into our dress room and introduced himself. Went, "Hi, I'm Andrew, and you guys are." Right? And I was starstruck. And then about ten minutes later, uh, Stuart Adamson came in, and I was, you know, I was just like a kid. I was, I was lost for words because I'd got all the Skids records, got the first two big country albums. Got all the Sisters of Mercy seven inches in their albums, you know. So this was great. And that meant more to me than actually playing in front of a bunch of teenagers, you know, that really couldn't care. They were just waiting for Mariah Carey to come on. <laughs> it's a weird
0: format, isn't it? I've mm. never obviously been on the show and it's now no longer, you know, mm. on. But everyone that I've spoken to just says it's so staged and like yeah, it is dry, a... the atmosphere.
2: And the, the playback's really quiet.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They only
2: put your vocals through the mic and you get three runs through at it. And they're very, very arsy. The local staff because they've seen it all and done it all, and they couldn't care about a band from Belfast. that has got the first hit. You know, they they really couldn't care. They uh, all they want you to do is do as you're told. And they bust in. They bust in. I, th- I can't remember the area it was where it was. Was it Surrey somewhere? But they would bust in like three or four busloads of youth club kids, who would turn up and look. You know, they would they would go and look at all the pop stars because pop stars look like pop stars. Then they'd see this guy with a bit, be- this chubby guy with a beard, and go. Is he an electrician that's accidentally put on a guitar? You know <laughs> what's this, and then you start singing the song. So that was that was quite off-putting, but you know, then they have people behind them telling them to cheer and dance and everything like that. So it was all right, you know. It was it was the it's thing experience, where, right? For me to do it, it's a bit like when you play the concert hall in your hometown. You've always seen bands in for the first time. For us, it was like you know, I'd seen the Buzzcocks doing "Ever Fall in Love," on you know, on that on top of the pops, and for me to be playing our songs
0: on that was great. Around this time, do you get requested by Metallica
2: to play Donington as well? Does that happen? That was 95. What happened was we did Donington in 94 and it was Aerosmith we headlining. And that year we'd met Aerosmith because um, we got nominated for the MTV Music Awards for Best Album. Wow. And uh, we turned up at that and we, we met the Aerosmith guys. And then it came to Castle Donington, as it was called then. Yeah. And we got invited to play. So we were second on the main stage that day, which was brilliant. That was my favorite one. And Does that then the, rank as one of the
0: that, that's one of my favorite top ever, therapy gigs? Ever, yeah,
2: because the one after that the next year was a weird one for me because we did get asked by Metallica. We were in France doing promotion for our follow-up albums called Infernal Love and we were in Paris doing promotion and our management called us and said, uh, Slash's Snake Pit are playing at the elysium on Mark tonight. Can you and Michael go down and meet um, uh, Lars Ulrich? And we were going, what? I went, uh, it's about... Metallica want you to do special guests at donnington and uh but lars has never met you he likes the album can you go and meet lars so we went down and lars was there with a guy called john kennedy who i think some he's a legal guy with him and we got lars a beer and it was all this little room backstage and he was all very professional very friendly and he said yeah yeah it'd be great if you guys would play it. would you guys be into it so that was all good so we got there but that, the album that we released, Infernal Love, wasn't as well received by the rock community because it had cellos on it. It was very yeah, yeah. ambient samples. How so, do you feel about that album now, though? I like it now, but yeah. it, but at the time it made for a very uncomfortable Monsters Rock because um, we got there and there was all this, you know, the way people talk backstage at Festival Therapy or Second From Top, and you know, but the album's not that good and they've got a cellist with them today who's going to join them on stage. Did you play and Diane at Dunnington? We didn't play Diane. We no. played uh, Isolation and right. Die Laughing, both with the cello in them, Martin yeah. McCarrick on the cello. But then um, Slayer were beneath us on the bill that day and they weren't happy. You know, I, <laughs> I mean, a few, yeah, a few yeah, years yeah. later, Michael bumped into Kerry King. We did another festival. And uh, Michael said, oh, really good to see you again. Kerry went, yeah, we're above you guys. Someone got it right today. <laughs> <laughs> Jokingly or? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, there was, there was all that and a White Zombie had made a couple of comments because friends of ours knew White Zombie and they were pissed off that we were below them, on above them on the bill. I, but we had sold more records. That year we'd sold more records than Slayer and White Zombie. Only that, you know, 94, 95 we had done, that's why we were at that space. But I didn't enjoy it as much because all this nonsense was going on all day and that was the big Real question. bitchiness. If, yeah, that was going on all day. And then whenever we went on stage, I didn't enjoy the gig as much. But afterwards, we got to hang out. We, we hung out with Metallica. They, was, they went to Birmingham. They had an after show there, and we got invited back there. And we got to hang out and speak to them all. And they were all lovely.
0: And interestingly, of course, about a year or two after that, they then
2: made their own orchestral yeah. string album. Well, yeah, I mean, they. I mean, to be, in fairness <laughs> to them, they didn't. You know, they never slagged off the album or anything like that. They they liked, from what I knew, Lars liked Trouble Gump, But I was interested when their album came out. They would got the same photographer Anton Corbin in. Yeah, yeah, To do the same style and all this kind of thing. But you know, I I I love Metallica, and I they're one of the bands me and Michael will always defend to the day that they that band if it splits up or any of them die we will always defend them because I think people have been so unfair to them. You know, people, why do you think that is? Just because they always kind of take chances and mix they it. They take up chances and, and sort of mix it up. Do it people want. don't like. It. I mean, I suppose really, if you think about it, uh, Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning and means so much to so many people. It's it's such a point in their lives. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I was eighteen when those albums come out. But I know people that were 14 and those albums changed their lives. I mean, they completely and utterly changed their lives. So whenever Justice for All and Load came out and the Black album, you know, they felt betrayed, which in a way I can understand, you know, coming from that punk background, a lot of punk bands have betrayed people. But at the same time, I still think they've got such an amazing sound and such great qualities of songwriters that people never see beyond that. I mean, whenever the last album came out, um, we were on tour and we bought it, and some of our crew were going. What do you buy it for? It's gonna be terrible. And we said this is gonna be great. I remember playing it on the the tour bus, and me myself and Mike were going. These are great. Listen to the riffs, you know. Like listen to this, you know, moth into a flame. I mean, that's amazing. They weren't having any of it.
0: What did you think of Lulu? I've never actually listened to that album. I've listened to it. Like, I've one, never bought it, it's the one gets... I haven't
2: bought, but I do like it. It's, I haven't bought it because I hate it, or I haven't bought it as a statement. I just haven't got around to buying it. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I mean, I think it, uh, whenever I saw, them, I think it was later with Jules Holland, they were on it with them. I thought that was great, you know, and, <laughs> and even the Marianne Faithfull appearance whenever she was she appeared with them in a video was good as well. But in those days, I mean, it's funny they were before their time because yeah. if a metal band does that now, they can get away with it. You know, metal is such an op- it's a more open church now than it's ever been. You know, if you especially in the, the world's of black metal and thinking the technical sides of, of death metal, if you listen to some of the, what passes as black metal, you know, gnaw their tongues and you can go from the sym simp- um, symphonic of Satyricon and all. Right through to something like, you know, uh, uh, No Other Tongues, which is basically just noise, avant-garde noise. And it's really, really open-minded. And people will listen to Sun, but they'll also listen to Motorhead Metallica. Coming from the DIY sort
0: of underground independent punk scene mm. that you guys did, did you get a lot of flack initially for obviously signing with a major label? And then did you obviously get a lot of flack again from your fans when you didn't repeat Trouble Gun? with infernal mm. though so you're, you're no stranger yeah. yourself to oh no we, we can, we've got people
2: yeah I'll complete. <laughs> i mean the first two albums the first single and the first two albums were lauded by john Peel and maximum rock and roll and the punk underground and we were signed to the coolest american noise label you could be with touch and go who had got the butthole surfers and big black and sonic youth and all this and then we signed to M and Simply at the at the time because we were absolutely skinned, we wanted to tour, and we'd we offer opportunities because of our first our two indie albums. We had opportunities to tour all around, all around the world basically, and we couldn't afford it. And we negotiated it with some labels, some independent labels, and we didn't want a great deal of money. We signed A and M in the end, and I remember things like there used to be a a record a mail order company called Allen's. In England, that sold all the punk and skate stuff that used to sell our records, and we used to buy a lot of records from Ireland. And I remember they actually sold "Nurse" in the you know, in Melody Maker. There was an Alan's ad, and it said "therapy and in brackets. Said it's actually good, <laughs> you know, in brackets as if no, this is going to be n- crap because on a major. Yeah, but you know, we did get a lot of that. You know, you know, we, sometimes even to this day, you know, I'll meet people if I'm out in Dublin at a pub or something to bump into someone that's formed a new band that's influenced by. Botch, you know what I mean, or a Black Flag Dahlia, they'll go, oh, I loved your first two albums, but the rest of your stuff's crap, you know. And then what we did was we went and made Trouble Gum, which is basically a sort of gateway drug. It was like an alternative rock album, for want of a better term. Yeah. A term I don't like, but that's what it was. And it got awards and it sold a million copies. And we followed that up with a dark, sort of poetic, gothic album. So the guy that likes Machine Head and Pantera and bought Trouble Gum all of a sudden goes, what is this this is absolute garbage i'm not buying this so we lost a lot of fans there and then after that it was just it we were we, we have we have a career ever since and we've got our fan base but how was it revisiting infernal love a lot better because i hated that
0: album did for you get years. to see actually that the songs did actually connect and mean something to oh, more people more, than more so
2: than trouble gum actually we saw really? more we saw more people this, this sounds weird crying down the front of the audience to songs on. You know, we we toured at, uh, bits of Europe and in the UK and it meant a lot more to people than Troublegum uh the people that were there I think basically because it had
0: connected emotionally yeah
2: and more we saw more people with the infernal love logo the two question mark hearts were tattooed on oh, we wow. saw a lot of those come out and which is which kind of um give me a bit of vindication really because for years I couldn't listen to that record because it got so so panned and so slammed and you know we couldn't go anywhere with you know for about a year and a half we couldn't go anywhere without people bringing that up. You know, if I went to any rock club on a night night off somewhere, someone would go, well, what did you do with Infernal Love? It is a piece of crap, you know? And so you'd end up leaving that Did club. you get
0: it from musicians as well as fans? Mm-hmm. Did you have any sort of notable peers? Yeah, I say, got couple I, I remember, like, a
2: friend of mine, James Bradfield from the Mannix, he didn't like Infernal Love. He just, he thought it was... And he just straight up told me Straight you, up really? told me, No, he, he always will do. Yeah. But he loved Trouble Gump. I mean, he just come up and says, I don't like it. You know what I mean? And I got... Um, a few Irish friends of mine in bands that are, you know, that've been in bands for years, going. They didn't really get what we were trying to do. Some people, though, no, did come out and say things like Ricky Warwick, bless him. I remember name, he thought it was the best thing we'd ever done. You know what I mean? So, um, but a lot of other people that were people we knew in bands and we would hang out with, and especially a lot of the underground set from back in the the days when we were in NME, quite a lot. They. I don't even think to be honest they'd listen to it. Yeah. I think it was just that thing whenever it became word of mouth that it's terrible.
0: I guess they see like the image as well because it was, you know, a quite um as far away from sort of underground punk rock oh, as you yeah. could get, right?
2: Well we were we did think we were we were trying to be arch and taking the, the piss a little bit. Yeah, we, yeah. That's why we did it and we talked about Anton Corbin with it. We were meant to look like a really cheesy show band, you know, yeah, all yeah. the hand gestures and the yeah. stick on mustaches. But it completely and the red frilly shirts. But people actually thought we were being serious and took it really, really badly. I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, look. I mean, you can think about these things all day, but I'm still here doing it, and you know, we've, we've still got a career. And I think, you know,
0: what are you in now? Twelve albums into your career. No, like the next, next one's fifteenth. Mm-hmm. Fifteen. Studio.
2: Studio. Yeah. Wow. That's unreal. Tell me, number fifteen, yeah. So we've got. Um, you know, we, we've always we've, we've always keep turning the uh, we tour twice a year. We do festivals every summer you know
0: i saw you at hellfest in france Mm -hmm. i want to say three years ago Mm -hmm. three or four Yeah. and the size of the crowd you were playing to was like what you'd see for a headline act
2: at download in the uk it was massive well we see the thing was about that was we used to be massive in france like trouble gun was a massive massive record in france and two of the singles went to the charts and the album went top 10 and it was a big record and we hadn't been back to france properly in a while right and we went and the, the guy put us on that and we went down well, it was televised and we went back and did a French tour after that. And it was the most people we'd ever seen at a French gig in years. You know, we were really shocked. We went back and did a French tour and the, the people are back, this is great. So we know that we've got health Hellfest to thanks for that. And the guy that put us on there took a real punt, you know, cause he could have given that spot to somebody else that's 15 years younger than us. Do you remember who you were sandwiched in between? Uh, I think it was Crossfire was the the band on before us, which right. was a French new metal band, and then after us, uh, I can't remember. I know Iron Maiden headline because we watched their set. It would have been good if you were on After Slayer. No no, 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 no. No, we did the Czech the gig that that happened that was the Czech Republic, right? Quite a few years ago, it was uh, it was that one. Do you know when they did the the big three came back mm-hmm. Anthrax? When we did we did that gig in the Czech Republic and we were on second, right? And uh, so it was like you know. Metallica Headlined, Slayer, Anthrax, Megadeth, uh, what's that, man, Volbeat? Yeah, yeah. And then us, and then some band on first, so we were like kind of on second that day, which pleased Kerry King no <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who do you have in sort of your sights at the moment as bands that are inspiring you and you uh, think are doing interesting things? They can be either mm. new or
2: yeah. well, like old-timers that are still doing it. Mm. New bands... Um, I kind of like a band from Seattle called the Arctic Flowers, the female-fronted dark post-punk band. They're really, really good. I like the guitarist Stan; he's got a great style. Because um, you're listening to music all the time, aren't you? Still? All the time, yeah, yeah. constantly. Uh, what have I forgot recently, I like Little Peep. He's a he's a rapper from America. My, my, my son, who's seventeen, is really into him, and I kind of cribbed some, overheard some of it one day. And it, I can't tell him I'm listening to it because he'd stop listening to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, Dad, you're making it yeah, uncool. Yeah. I like him, you know, uh, Call Me When You're Sober is the last album. He's got a great track called Kiss, which I really like. Um, I liked Brand New's last album, actually, a lot. And I can take or leave Brand New as a band, but it's all kind of mid-paced and kind of solemn and melancholy, which sits well with me. There's a a guy in Belfast called Herb McGee, who's under the name of Arvo Party, makes electronic records, which are great. His album is amazing. It just came out last week. And what else, punk-wise... I like bands like Helter Skelter from uh, Australia that are kind of old school street punk as well. But basically loads of stuff. I like uh, XXX, Tintathe and the rapper. Um, Burial I still love on Hyperdub Records. Um, Vince Staples made a great album recently, which has got sort of party trap tunes on it. Um,
0: yeah, Still that wide pole. Has to be,
2: yeah. yeah. And then Michael McKinney. Is there
0: anyone called. that you really don't like? that you see as being successful and you're like, how the fuck are no, they so no. big? You know what? I mean, years,
2: years ago, I used to be a bit like that, but I suppose now I think, well, I'm, I've got respect for any musician. Yeah, you know, I doing think, it. Yeah, I've, I do have respect. Because you know how hard yeah. it is. I know how hard it is and I think anyone out there giving it a go, yeah. What about
0: family life for you? How has that sort of improved and changed and focused your professional life?
2: It's been better for me because really in, 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 for many, many years now, you know, I've cut the party and right back because I know that I've got a family to go back to and I want to be in decent shape. I want to be a family guy for them when I get home. I don't want to be coming back with a chronic hangover for three days and then yeah. be grumpy for two days and then sort of sludge back into family life. So it's, I like it and enjoy it a lot more. You know, I suppose also we, when we've been doing this now, 27 odd years, whatever, you know, it's even longer. You know, it's, um, there comes a point whenever we have to sort of get prioritized with the band, you know, the rehearsing has to be good we have to make sure the studio time, we're not in there drinking whenever we should be recording. We should go in there fully prepared. And then when we go on tour, you know, people, we do, we owe the people that come and see us after all these years, we owe them a good, a good gig. We've got 15 albums coming up, you know. When we go on tour, they want to hear songs from all those albums, so we can't go on and give them 50 minutes of the hits. If they pay whatever they pay to come and see us in Hamburg or Zurich or Brixton or Manchester, we give them an hour and forty-five minutes at the very least, and it has to be a well-thought-out set. You know, and you can't do that if you're up to five in the morning doing charlie and <laughs> drinking cans of special <laughs> brew. <laughs> Can we end it
0: on one of your favourite party stories? If you could share one with me, you got a good one. If you're saying like, if I'm thinking and planning about my autobiography, this is one that's definitely got to go in there because this is legendary.
2: Uh, well, there was one night in Belfast when uh, myself. In fact, Michael McKagan, I must have, never, ever took drugs. But myself and five, some of our crew, were at my flat in Belfast, and we all took acid, and we were listening to loads and loads of records. I think we were listening to the Butthole Surfers, which probably wasn't a good idea, just because it can send you spiralling out, but we took yeah. acid. And uh, we decided to go for a walk, just as it was getting daylight, in East Belfast, which can be a tasty enough place. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't want to be out walking around there. But that's where my flat was. And there was a, a place that was a duck sanctuary, which was... Um, a little island in the middle of a pond, uh, and you could actually go out. You know, if you could walk, you would climb over the wall, get in there, and there would be a couple of little rowboats. And the, it didn't open to 10 o'clock, but we broke in and you'd get in the rowboat. We thought, let's go over and sit in the duck island. It'll be brilliant. We'll watch the rest of the sun come up. So we got into, we all got in, and all of a sudden, as we got over the wall, myself and Fife looked around, and Fife went, Have we got into the duck sanctuary? Or are we in the zoo? And I said, What do you mean? He said, There's a lion over there. And I turned around and there was a lion about hundred yards from us. So we said, run, just run. So we ran and we ran and we ran. We were panicking and we got to this barbed wire fence and we we jumped on the barbed wire, cut our hands, got to the top. And as we got over, we saw Michael and we go, Michael, aren't you on? And his tears were streaming down his face. He went, lads, it's a golden retriever. <laughs> <laughs> and we had all these cuts on our arms. Clothes all ripped. We were convinced we'd broken into the zoo and we're being chased by lions. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, Andy, a pleasure, as always. Great to see you. Um,
0: anything you can tell us about the new album in terms of perhaps textures, tones, themes, and when it
2: might be out? New album, the minute we've got 13 songs written, so there'll either be 13 songs or we'll, we'll whittle it down to 10 or we might write some more, but they're all finished. The um, We're trying to build on what we did with Disquiet, which is kind of... Uh, hooky choruses but really tough riffy verses and and like that so kind of a a classic therapy template and we're trying to make the rhythms really interesting which is something therapy's always done it's going to be produced by tom dalgetty that did disquiet and he's also done albums by ghost and royal blood and bands like that and um it will be recorded before christmas so we're kind of hoping that it comes out next february early march next march we're going on tour with the stranglers for all of march uh opening for them and then we have our own uh uk and european tour after festival season so the we haven't got a title for the album yet but it will be if you like disquiet trouble gum high anxiety that's the kind of vein we're going in with this record and we do hope to get it all done by christmas nice love it all right mate see Thanks, you back Alan. here you soon do. come on again sometime. thank you